Insurance agents from around the world, welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for iProtect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a six foot three sophomore from Sarah Land, Alabama, parade first team All-American rivals, five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and the agency owner of Portal Insurance. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? Great, Scott. How are you today? I've never been more excited to do a podcast in my entire life. In-studio guest, Scott Howell gets fired up. Guys, we have got a very special edition of the Insurance Guys podcast for you today. Let me give me give, me, give you the backstory on this. So last July, around the 16th of July, my dad is the attorney for an electric cooperative here in Alabama. He was at a meeting in Orange Beach, Alabama, very close to where we are sitting right now. And he walked out of a conference. He'd heard the keynote speaker there. And uh, he called me on my cell phone and he said, Scott, I just heard a guy talk that you have got to have on the podcast. And here we sit today. And, uh, you know, he doesn't tell me this stuff. Yeah, I don't. I don't. So, so guys, let, let me say this. Okay. There is probably no topic that I could discuss in the insurance business that is important as the topic that we're going to discuss today, and that is business ethics, insurance business ethics, because there is no industry in the United States of America that lends itself in one way or another in, in more ways than we have to not do things the right way on so many different fronts, whether it's a claim, whether it's handling the money, whether it's lying to clients, whether it's lying to other agents, whether it's uh, putting a quote together because you got to have two more sales to the, for the month to hit your goal and, and maybe you, you put something on a policy or leave something off so that you could sell it to make a little bit more money that month. No topic I can imagine can be uh, more detrimental to your agency than business ethics. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, he is from Bozer City, Louisiana. He lives in Loxley, Alabama, right across the causeway here. He is a graduate from Louisiana State University. He is married to the beautiful Phyllis Beam, and they have one beautiful daughter named Jennifer. And he was the founding CFO of Health South. Aaron participated in the corporate fraud that nearly destroyed the Fortune 500 company in 2003. Since serving prison time and paying restitution, he has spoken to over 250 audiences in corporate, educational, and associational settings, challenging them, challenging them to set the bar higher for ethical behavior and and their, for, for both themselves and their organizations, ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor today to introduce to you on the Insurance Guys podcast, Mr. Aaron Beam. How are you, Aaron? Thank you very much. That's uh, quite an introduction. <laughs> Thank well, you. Well, Aaron, I, I, am, <laughs> I am excited and I'm proud to have you to, here today with us. Now, before we get started, I read your book last night. And, and guys, listen to, listen to Scott when he says this, okay? Aaron has written a book called The Ethics, excuse me, Ethics Playbook, 
Winning Ethically in Business. And before we get started today, I want to read an excerpt from this book. I've never done this before. This is a this is a Jocko Willick thing. He Jocko does this all the time on his podcast, but I want to read something to you guys, okay? And then we're going we're going to get to know Mr. Mr. Aaron Beam here. So this is page 105 of the book. And the reason this resonated with me so much is what I have found to be the case relative to corporate and business ethics is when people start making mistakes, they start rationalizing and justifying their behavior and what they're doing. And and when I get finished reading this, we're going to talk about your backstory a little bit and get into that and, and kind of work us up to today. But So here's an excerpt from page 105. If you're not careful, you'll tend to see and define things as gray so you can rationalize your own unethical behavior. If you really study the situation, you'll see that it's probably much more black and white than gray. You should look for the solution that is as close as possible to complete abstinence from from unethical behavior. It's easier to make the right decisions when you have a handle on your rationalizations. As Dr. Ariely points out, virtually all humans have the capacity to do certain dishonest things without damaging their self-concept as honest. Oh, I could do a three-hour podcast just on that. Unfettered rationalization leads us down a slippery slope leading us to lie to just about everyone, including ourselves, to cover for our unethical behavior. The road to stopping this vicious cycle starts with recognizing the rationalizations and hearing ourselves invoking them, and immediately realizing that it is time to rethink our decisions. In the long run, you'll never regret taking the high road if you compromise your personal values Assuming honesty and integrity are among them in small things, you will eventually do so in large things. I love that so much. <laughs> that speaks to what I always talk about. When people start doing unethical things, most of the time they start rationalizing and justifying in their mind why it's okay to do that. It's so true. I think uh – just the word rationalization, I probably use it in my speeches more than any other word because it's at the heart of how we can stay human when we're doing small things that are wrong. We rationalize that, well, everybody does this. I'll only do it this one time. It's really not going to hurt anybody. You have all kinds of ways to rationalize uh, dishonesty and bad behavior, and it's at the heart of being ethical is to have the courage, and I emphasize courage a lot, to have the courage to do the right thing, not look for the gray areas, not look for a way to rationalize your bad behavior. So I always ask our podcast guests to go back in my DeLorean and sit down with me for a minute and talk about how they got started in the insurance business. Now, you were the founding CFO of Health South, which in 2003 – was the largest fraud case in the history prior to Enron was the largest fraud case that had had happened in the United States of America involving both yourself, Richard Scruci, who was the CEO at that time. 
Tell us a little bit, and I've read this in the book, so I'm at a little bit of an advantage, but tell us kind of a broad five-minute uh, summary of kind of how everything happened and how you, you, know, how you played in, into that. All right, let me see if I can do that. I met Richard Scrooge in Houston, Texas. I actually was hired by him uh, to work at another company. company got bought out, and he wanted to start his own company. And he raised the venture capital to do it, and we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. We were in Houston, Texas, and we started Health South. And our goal was to be a rehabilitation company, specializing particularly in sports medicine, uh, rehabbing athletes, but all kinds of people. And our goal day one was to be a public company. We, we had that focus day one. And within two years, less than three years, we were a public company. And the stock just went straight up. Mm. And I had several hundred thousand shares that I controlled or owned outright. And um, I went from being having a net worth of maybe $50,000 to having a net worth of several million dollars, what seemed like almost overnight. That's the magic of going public. You know, one day you have stock which you really can't trade. You don't really know what it's worth. But then every morning you can look in the newspaper and see what your net worth is doing. How fast did you go to the newspaper every morning? <laughs> I mean, every day when, mm. uh, when we first started trading. It was very, very exciting. In fact, I can't think of anything in business that's more exciting than taking a company public. I tell people it's a little bit like making it to the NFL in football when you trade on the New York Stock Exchange, you're playing at the highest level. Yeah. And, and it's very exciting. It's very intoxicating. And all of that excitement and riches and things helped me rationalize my bad behavior, not have the courage to stand up. I didn't want to lose my money. I'd like to point out that I wasn't what they call a predatory fraudster. I didn't start committing fraud to get rich. I got rich and then wanted to keep my riches, and I began to compromise my ethics. The pressures of Wall Street, as you probably have heard, are, are enormous. Every quarter you have to report your earnings, and every quarter Wall Street wants you to deliver better and better and better earnings. And the first time you don't, they beat your stock up, and all of that excitement of checking the newspaper and seeing your net worth go up by hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, uh, it can go down even faster when when the stock starts going down. So uh, that was kind of one of the reasons I got caught up in the fraud was to protect myself, to please Wall Street, please Richard Scrooge. And, you know, a lot of people read my books and hear my speeches and they say, well, we really understand how it happened to you. But that really doesn't make it right. I want to go back to that word courage. Mm. To be ethical, you have to have the courage to do the right thing. Now, it's not like the same kind of courage that you run into a building that's on fire to save uh, some child's life. Uh, certainly that is courage. But just the day-to-day -day doing of the right things takes courage. And it's so easy to just do little things wrong, not have the courage to stand up, and face the music. I think it's a little bit like sports. Uh, you, you look at a guy like Nick Saban. Why are his teams so good? He's total disciplinarian. 
He totally wants them to do it his way. He does not compromise. And the if those, slightest bit. The slightest bit. And that's um, what, what you have to do. Uh, there's a good quote uh, by St. Augustine, I think, from 400 A.D. That, it's in your book. Yeah, complete abstinence is better than perfect moderation. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is that it's easier to be perfect than to walk the wiggly line of being moderately correct. And I tell people in my speeches, I say, what is the right moderate amount of texting while you're driving? None. You can kill somebody. <laughs> right. right. What is the right moderate amount of cheating on your taxes? None. Padding an insurance claim. Mm. None. Mm. So when you set your ethical standard below perfect mm. and you rationalize that a little bit of cheating is okay, you're already on what they call the slippery slope. You know, one thing that's always stood out to me, and, and I, I want to speak to all the insurance agents listening to this that are in other parts of the country, but if you lived in the state of Alabama in the mid to late 1990s, Health South was everywhere. Oh, yeah. They, they sponsor. <laughs> when I say everywhere, everywhere, guys, I'm talking every Everybody sporting event, every, everything was sponsored by Health South. Every, it, it was Kinda like how you see Morgan and Morgan ads right now. You saw Health yeah. South ads well, everywhere. You know, I, it's like what, you know, like you see Geico ads on TV now. It's, it was just everywhere. Go to ahead. give you a good example, in the day, we were the largest sponsor of the Paul Feinbaum show. I believe that. We were. Oh, hard. And he, he <laughs> Feinbaum's a pretty slick character. He picked Richard Scrooge as the most influential sports figure in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> Scrooge paid him a lot of money. Sure. Yeah, but sure. Uh, it, it that's how pervasive we were. We, we were everywhere, like you say. Scrooge yeah. liked that, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He loved it. He loved it. Well, Feinbaum is smart, and he knew Richard's ego was huge, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. if he said things like that, you know. Well, that that speaks to what I was about to say. So what I've always felt like just personally prior to reading your book, I've always told people that the Health South scandal, if you will, and and what what happened there in terms of business ethics – I think a lot of people that worked there, including yourself, had fallen into what I call a trap. It was like a tiger trap. You've got the stock, you've got the stock, you've got the the big house, and the, everybody's driving the Mercedes, and there's money, and and there's all this stuff, and then you you mix into that pot of chili an egomaniac, which is which is exactly what Richard Scrooge it was. Now, if he wants to argue that with me, he can come on this podcast and he and I can have a discussion about that. Or we could go out in the parking lot and settle it like men. But but Richard Scrooge was an egomaniac. Let's just all call it what it was. And you knew as the acting CFO of Health South that if you went to him or to the board of directors or to the public and the media and you, you know, said, hey, this is wrong. This is how it is. That you would immediately be fired. I mean, there, there is, there would be no, hey, uh, shouldn't have done that, but uh, we're going to let you stay on. You would have been fired that second. You're so, exactly right. So then you lose all the trappings that you've acquired during your time at, at, at Health South. And I always felt like, from the employee standpoint, that got caught up in that tornado of national and global attention on Health South, that that's really kind of what happened to all of them. It's true. I've talked to several people since the years have passed, and we now look back and realize that he had created a cult. 
Yeah, he, he had created exactly a cult. And you look at cult-type people, people that get succumbed to a cult-type person, mm-hmm. they're afraid of that person. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, uh, for, for religious reasons, don't want to disappoint right. all those things. And he, it was a cult. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we didn't realize it. We just kind of, this is probably a silly analogy you probably heard before, but if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling really hot water, he'll jump right out. But if you put a frog in a pot of lukewarm water mm-hmm. and very slowly raise the temperature over time, he will die. Right. So that's how cults start. They start slowly. They build over time. And by the time you realize you're in the boiling water, it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. So our podcast is dedicated to all the independent and captive insurance agents out there. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, there is no industry in the world that has the opportunity for some type of unethical behavior, regardless of what that is, to take place than there is in the insurance business. If if you don't mind, based on your experience, the fact that you've done time in jail for what you did, you've you've paid the price for that in a lot of different ways, talk to our insurance agents out there a little bit about things that they can do uh, whether they're an associate agent working for another egomaniac, and there's a lot of them out there that are agency owners, or uh, maybe maybe it's one of those guys. Now, those guys typically don't listen to anything anybody says. That's one of the, the traits of an egomaniac is we're going to do it my way, and I'm not going to listen to anybody else. But uh, talk to them a little bit about some things they can do to, to make sure they're, they're, they're being ethical in what they do. The key thing is to recognize the fact that, that your industry or any industry has ethical dilemmas. I tell people it's a little bit like safety training in a factory. Before they let you work in a factory, you are trained extensively, if it's a dangerous environment, how to abide by the safety rules. And if you don't, you may lose your life, you may lose an arm, you have to abide by the safety rules. And you have to realize there there are safety ethical rules that you need to abide by because if you succumb to being unethical, the consequences are, are deadly, so to speak. So one of the little things, and I use this in my speech, I have a painting in my house, and if it's a young lady, and I name the painting Ethel, or play on ethics. And if I give you my business card today, you look on the back of it. Saw that. Saw there's a picture of mm-hmm. Ethel. I see ethical Ethel in my living room every day when I'm home. And she's my reminder that I need to be ethical every day. So uh, I would encourage insurance agents to have constant reminders mm-hmm. in their everyday workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't be afraid to say we're an ethical company. And constantly stress those things. And we're creatures of habits, and, and we become what we do. We become a slave to it. And you you can make it work. You can flip it and be so into ethics that you're not as nearly as likely to succumb to unethical behavior. If it's a main focus, you have constant reminders. Those are the little things that you can do. So in my agency, I have something that I tell my people constantly, and I try to tell it to them about once a month. And that saying that Scott Howell has is, we're going to do the right thing no matter what that right thing is. 
So just always do the right thing. Yes. Again, and, and, and the courage to do it. That's right. And so about three months ago, we had a claim, a very large claim happen. Insurance adjuster calls. There was some questions about the claim. And I had an agent call me and he's like, well, we could say so-and-so and so-and-so. And I said, mm-mm, 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 no. No, no. What we're going to do is we're going to tell the exact truth, exactly how it happened, and whatever the consequences of that are, we're going to we're going to we're going to deal with that. But my opinion of your book and what I know about business ethics, and you are the textbook definition of that. This is it always starts out with little things. It's the it's the 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 frog in the lukewarm water. It's the little white lies that don't matter. Okay, and then your employees, your team members, your business partners recognize that you're telling little white lies or you're doing things this way. So guess what? They start doing it that way, and then it is a a small snowball rolling down a giant mountain. And before it's over with, you've got other things going on in your agency that are bigger and, and can cause very big problems and, and can lead you. I know insurance agents that are sitting in jail right now for, yep. for, for insurance fraud. every year. Absolutely. Wow. But you know, one thing too, I want to ask and get your opinion on this. You know, I have a team of, of four salespeople that work for me. Scott has, I don't know how many six work for him, six that yeah. work for him. Um, and I always talk to my, to my team about, and this is in, in a sales context of the importance of thinking long term, right. not thinking short term. Ah. And I think when when salespeople, especially in insurance, because unlike car sales, unlike real estate, unlike you know a lot of ninety five percent of other sales, we have to see that customer after we sell them that product. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always tell my people, you know, when, when salespeople make short term now decisions. Nine times out of ten, they're going to do things not the right way, mm-hmm. and it may and it may not even be anything unethical. It may be bringing on a client that does not fit our model client, and right. the relationship doesn't jive. I kind of like equate that to this Wall Street culture of worrying about the next quarter and the next quarter mm-hmm. and the next quarter That's instead right. of looking at how is this going to affect us five years down the road. Do you think that Wall Street culture of that quarter by quarter kind of breeds people or, that are going to do things that are unethical for the short-term benefit? It, it really does. You really hit the nail on the head. Human beings by nature are short-term oriented. You want something, you want it now. Mm-hmm. All kind of studies have been done. If Cases where they offer somebody, you can have $1,000 today, or a year from now, you can have $1,180 or 18% on your return. Many, many times the people say, no, I want the money now. Yeah. People want results now. The Throughout history... Uh, when I grew up in Bossier City, Louisiana, there was the Red River run ran between Shreveport and Bossier. Guess where the when I flushed my toilet, where it went? It, <laughs> it went into the Red River. Everybody's happy. You got the crap out of your house. Uh, so a few fish die. What the heck? In the '60s, the rivers up north started catching on fire. And so people finally said, wow, we got to stop polluting our rivers. we got to stop doing these things. But it all happens because you want to flush your toilet and get rid of your stuff right now. Mm. And you don't care what you're doing in the long term. Uh, let me give you one example of how 
the lying starts on Wall Street and all. There's a when you operate multiple units, the investors are looking at your same store growth. They want you to grow your earnings, not just by buying other companies that are starting up more, but they want the same stores to be growing, and that's mm-hmm. a key thing. They want each McDonald's to sell more mm-hmm. and not do the investment of building more and more McDonald's. Well, we started reporting uh, our same store growth, and they were good. They were great. But eventually, they slow down. So what we did when we were in a city like a Houston or in Atlanta, when we opened our second location, we rolled that in to the first store as its growth. <laughs> now, the reason we did that, sometimes one manager would manage both stores. There were a lot of common costs. So we said, heck, it's all really one store. And we perpetuated this lie about our same store growth for a long time before people really caught on to what we were doing. But it's those kind of little white lies that start because you want to please Wall Street. And you it the more you do those kind of little things, the more you begin to think like that. How can we jimmy right. the numbers here? Right. Short, we yeah. were doing that long before we literally cooked the books. But it made it easier to cook the books once we had already been accustomed to lying about our same store growth. So talk a little bit. I want, I want to hear something that I didn't read in the book last night, and I read a lot of it, most of it. So what happened? Hell South starts to get investigated. You're, you're already gone at that point. Uh, at some point, I'm, I'm assuming feds come to your house, flash the badges. We'd like to speak with you. You get deposed in court. So carry us through that. What happened at that point in time after you got deposed by attorneys and I'm assuming had to hire a criminal defense attorney to to represent you? It's it's a pretty interesting story. I had left the company after the hard fraud, the cooking of the book started. Uh I only participated in that for really one year, less than a year. Did you you leave because of your guilt? Yes, yes, because of my guilt. uh, Richard had promised me and my chief accountant that we'd only cooked the books once to get through a, a bad spot, and he was going to cut costs, sell our airplanes, and get the company back on sound footing. And when he didn't live up to those promises, I said, no, he's going to ask us to keep cooking these books right. every quarter. And, and so I left. And luckily I did. Uh, I think me getting a very light jail time was mm-hmm. the the government looked at my behavior. I didn't stay there. Some of the people participated in the fraud for seven years. Right. So anyway, so I left. I've been down in Fairhope, Alabama for uh, from 1997 to 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw it on TV. I turned on Channel 15. Did your, I, heart, did your heart drop yeah, when you saw yeah, it? Yeah, the announcer came on NBC Automobile. Uh, we opened a nice news with a breaking story out of Birmingham, Alabama. Massive accounting fraud uncovered at Health South, mm. and I had rationalized and that the fraud had stopped because I'd been gone for so long. I just assumed it couldn't have been going on still. But uh, no, no, no agents uh, knocked on my door. I wasn't handcuffed or anything like that. Alice Martin, the attorney with the federal government in the Wall Street Journal, said that they knew of other people who were involved in the fraud. And if you're one of those people, you should come forward. 
So I immediately uh, contacted Donald Bristman, a very good criminal attorney here in Mobile. No, Donald. Yeah, a very, very sharp attorney. Very well known. And I told him over the phone my situation. He said, okay, Mr. Bean, let me call the feds in Birmingham. I'll call you back before the end of the day. About two hours later, he called back. He said, oh, yeah, Mr. Bean, they want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. You be in my office at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I went down to his office and uh, told him my story. From that point forward, he was really really my attorney representing me through the whole process. Luckily, I was never handcuffed. I was never perp walked. Or no perp walked or anything like that, which I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. Right. But uh, I did. We He set up a meeting with the government, and we went to Birmingham, Alabama about three days later, and I basically uh, confessed. I, I said, yes, I participated in the fraud, and here's what I did. And it's an interesting thing how the government does these investigations. Of course, they asked you, okay, Mr. Bean, we want to know. And my attorney, he emphasized you, tell the truth, you tell the truth. Mm. Do not lie to the FBI. Do not lie to the federal government. These guys weren't born yesterday, and they will know if you're lying. Mm -hmm. He said, best thing you can do is tell the truth. So they would ask me, was Richard Scrushy involved? Yes. Was so-and-so involved? Yes. Was so-and-so involved? I'm not sure. And I would right. say, I'm not sure. I don't know. But that, they went down the list of all the characters. And some people might say, well, you ratted all of your guys out. I, I hate that it being couched like that. Yeah. I was no, not. I told the truth. I, I was not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was not going to tell the truth and or, or lie so right. the guys wouldn't go to jail. Right. You know, I was just I was just telling the truth. And now, I, at this point in time, somewhere between that here and the trial, did you ever come face-to-face with Scrushy again? Never. Only never at the trial. It. Never. And and they they made sure. They they said, don't you dare try to contact Richard. If right. he contacts you. And he did have an attorney out of Montgomery call me one day mm. and said, hey, Mr. Beam, uh, this so-and-so with Richard Scrushy's lawyers, uh, we'd like to talk to you. <laughs> and I said, I'll get back to you on that. And I called Donald Bressman, right. and he blew a gasket. Don't you dare talk to his lawyers right, about right. anything. And I couldn't talk to any of the other people that were charged. Sure. We were all uh, kept separate. Even when I went to Birmingham to testify or to be interrogated by the FBI, uh, some of the other defendants were there, and uh, they kept us in separate rooms. We weren't able to talk to each other at all. So interesting. the whole process is fairly interesting. Very unpleasant, but a fairly interesting thing. It's uh, uh, Richard had a. Have y'all seen the TV show Bull, the, the jury selection firm TV I show? I haven't seen it. No. The John Grisham novel, Runaway Jury, I've the seen movie. Yeah. yeah. So Richard hired a jury selection firm. Sure. There's a lot of intrigue in the whole deal. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. They help. They help uh, assist his attorneys in deciding who they are going to leave on the jury yeah. and who they're going to strike. Yeah. So. yeah. And their goal was to get a jury that was as numb as a box of rocks. Sure. Sure. Uh, this was a complicated deal. Right. And these poor people didn't understand anything that was going on. Oh, and know? they were going to make it as complicated as they could oh, to yeah. make sure they didn't. Yeah. They yeah. really had doubt in their mind. So how long was your prison term? How long did you Just serve? three months. Three I, months. I went to, in Maxwell Air Force Base, a uh, uh, prison in there, and uh, three months, which uh, I have some interesting stories. I got there, and I was real naive, and so I decided to meet somebody. I asked him, what did you do? What, what are you in here for? 
And finally, one of the older inmates came up to me and said, look, knock it off. You don't go around interviewing the other inmates about their... He said, that's that's bad prison protocol. He said, if you become friends with somebody and they want to tell you about their crime, you do it. But don't be going around asking everybody. I was going to write a book, you know. Here's the guys I was in jail with. Right, right, right. But uh, I figured out right away, you don't do that. Is that experience harder or easier than you thought it was going to be? Probably easier because in my mind, prison was you become somebody's girlfriend. I mean, (laughs) this was a minimum federal minimum security prison, and they do a very good job not letting anybody with any kind of violence in their background into that type of prison. But still, the first few days I was there, is very, very uncomfortable. Probably a little different up at Atmore. Probably so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah. I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, there. No, yeah, uh, that's big boy prison. Right. Right. right and uh, right. if yeah. you break any of the rules at the federal minimum security prison, there's a good chance there they tell you we're going to send you to big boy prison, mm-hmm. and you don't want to go to big boy prison. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so since that time, let's talk a little bit about our to our audience out there because there there may be uh, carriers or insurance uh, vendors out there that listen to our show that do want to talk to you a little bit further sure. about talking to their group about about you know uh you know business ethics so right. t- talk a little bit about how they can get in touch okay. with you and what how they can find well out great you. i'm glad you're giving me this opportunity sure. uh, today i do do public speaking uh, my speech is kind of twofold. I tell the health South story about how I got into the trap and everything. And then I talk about how you, you can be ethical, how right. your company can do things to. Okay. So uh, I have a website, AaronBeam.net. And you can go to that website and get all of my contact information and contact me if you want to uh, buy my book or uh, have me speak to your group. And that's www.aa, there's two A's in your name, A-A-R-O-N-B-E-A-M.net. That's exactly yeah. right, AaronBeam.net. And I'm also very Googleable. If you, get, if you forget my website, right. I think I invented that word Googleable. Googleable. Uh, you can Google me, and there's a wealth of information on there. There's even videos of me and things. So, What are you doing now? What's what's life like now? Um. You know, I, I was never a church person, but uh, my wife is a cradle Catholic, and seven years ago I joined the Catholic Church, and um, I'm a very, very changed person. Uh, I have a seven-year-old grandson, which is wonderful, and um, I, in June my wife and I will celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary, so I'm really in a pretty good place now. Uh, I totally understand uh, the consequences of what I did, and um, for a long time there's a lot of shame and all, but I've been successful with my speaking, and it's been very, very rewarding because I have college students send me emails and even write me letters telling me that my speech in, in their class was one of the best experiences while they were in college, and that makes me feel pretty good. It is a very rewarding thing, speaking. Scott and I both do speaking engagements with the insurance industry, and I always tell people I don't like speaking, but I like what I get from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and psychologically for you, I think any time you tell the story about your insecurities, and I'm assuming that this experience as a whole was probably 
probably top some kind of you know insecurity type thing for you but i think the more you talk about it and the more that you uh, share with other people and help others it probably helps you as well uh almost in a therapeutic yep, type of yep. way does that make sense oh, no no it's very cathartic doing yeah. this and i appreciate you recognizing that because yeah. I, i'm i don't want to brag but i'm i'm kind of pleased with how my life is going now oh, wow. I, I think i'm when I was a multimillionaire and just buying cars and homes and doing mm-hmm. all kind of crazy things, I was a, a trapped by my wealth. I right. got worried about losing my wealth. I wanted more wealth to mm-hmm. keep up with the Joneses and all. And uh, I realized today that I, I wasn't nearly as happy mm-hmm. uh, back then as I am today. Right. And I, I don't have a lot of money today. And was it your insecurities back then that was making you do sure, a lot of part, those things? Sure, part of those yeah. things, yeah. 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 So, and it's just the false sense that you think. Uh, uh, in 1806, Webster's Dictionary defines success as being generous, prosperous, healthy, and kind. Mm. That was the definition of success. Wow. Today, look it up in Webster's Dictionary. The definition of success is the attainment of wealth, fame, and rank. You need to go back to the 1806 definition of success. Just having a lot of money isn't necessarily a true measure of success. I don't know that I've ever heard anything any better than that, folks. And, and you know, Scott and listeners, there's a there's a reason that you have to do so many hours of ethics when you yep. do your CE for your insurance license. There's, there's a reason for that. And everybody hates it. I hate it. But there's a reason for that. And it's because it matters. Mm-hmm. So I have yep. an armband on my arm that says, because I said I would. That, and I look at yeah. that every day. And That's I your ethic. That because whether it's telling somebody I'm going to call them back the next day or that afternoon, or whether it's just doing the right thing, I think it's important for insurance agents to never let yourself ride the lightning of that gray area between whether it's I'm just going to do this one time or I'm going to lie about this or my principal agent who pays me a lot of money has asked me to do this and I know it's wrong. I know I know it's difficult to do. And I know from my own personal experience because I have not always been the guy that did the right thing all the time. And when I was younger, when I was probably Bradley's age, I would ride the lightning sometimes of not doing things the way they should be done. But the older I've gotten, the more I realize that if you'll just do the right thing every time, mm-hmm. then you don't have to worry about lying to cover up the lies. <laughs> you don't have to worry about going home at night and that shit's in your head because you're thinking, man, what if so-and-so finds out about this? In the insurance business, I had an old agent tell me one time, he said, if you ever steal the money, you're done. You're done. That's it. Yep. You're done. Yep. Uh, but there's really a lot more to it than just that. It's, it's, and, and if you don't think that your people are watching you and seeing you, know, you do things that may, maybe, like Bradley said, maybe that's not unethical, but maybe it's riding that lightning between black and white, whether it's 
you know, bringing a client in and giving them a 1% deductible when they've got a thousand dollar deductible on their homeowners and not even bothering telling them about it because the price is two, three or $400 cheaper. So you get the business and everybody's high-fiving each other. Okay. Well now you just did it. So guess what your other three personal lines agents are going to do? They're going to do the same damn thing. And not only that, I mean, thinking about almost reverse engineering from, okay, I'm about to, to sell this client a policy with, that's not as good as what they have now or right. it's a higher deductible whatever. And how is this going to affect me five years from now? Right. And honestly, I tell my team that because if the answer to that question is, I'm not worried about five years from now, I may not even be here. I don't want that person to work for me. Right, right. My name's on the door, not theirs, you know? Right. So I think even in every situation, think about, okay, if I do this like this now, yeah, I'm going to get that adrenaline rush. I'm going to get that endorphin high from writing that big policy. But how is that going to feel? How is the opposite of that going to feel right. Three years from now, when there's a claim, and they're like, "Wait a minute, what do you mean? I have a thirty-two hundred dollar deductible, not a five hundred, right?" Bingo. That how is that's, that? You know? That's when you got a problem. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that we have not mentioned on this podcast, and Aaron, I, I I I would be remiss if I don't say this before we get off. One thing that principal agents can do is if you are doing testing prior to hiring someone, if they take the DISC profile test, which a lot of agencies will test people in different ways before they come on board, one of the, uh, the, the factors that that thing tests for, and it tests on a scale, is uh, conscientiousness. And one of the things I always like to look at when somebody tests with our agency is I want to see how far up that conscientious scale they go. Because if they go way up that scale, that tells me that no matter what, if they don't have a dollar in their pocket, they're not going to steal money from our agency. But if they test low on that conscientious scale, 20%, 10%, well, (laughs) You might want, you know, there's somebody that psychologically might be due to watch, if you know what I mean. So that's one of the things I look at. I've got a couple people in my office that handle money for us that just were off the charts on the conscientious scale. But guys, listen to me. Two things I'm going to repeat that Aaron said every month. Every year, every day, if need be, you always need to tell your people, do the right thing. Do it all the time. Doesn't matter what the right thing is. Just do the right thing for people. And you need to have some type of, whether it's a plaque hanging in the bathroom above the toilet, whether it's a a plaque on everybody's wall that just says, wristband, wristband that they have to, that they wear. I don't care what it is. Put something up that everybody can see every day that basically says, do the right thing and do it all the time. And the second thing I would say is if you are a principal agent, whether you're an egomaniac that doesn't listen to anything anybody says and you're running 100 miles an hour and you got all kinds of things going on, when people come to you with those gray areas in the insurance business that we all deal with, you better be real careful on how you tell people to handle those situations. Because if you're the one telling them to do something wrong or to lie about something or to not do this or not do that, then that will eventually trickle down to your entire team 
and at some point you're going to have a big damn problem. Yep. I know of situations right now in agencies that I do that well. have just terrible reputations and and I, I talk about it to other agents all the time like, "Man, why do you think they do things that way?" I think it started with just one deal. That's it. And the it's out of the owner's control now and it's too yeah. far ingrained in the culture there right. to even rip the band-aid off. Right, right. You know? Guys, I want to I want to thank right. Aaron Bean for being here today. I am so proud of you, and I'm I'm, I'm so glad that I got the chance to meet you. And I'm so happy. It, can it, I, it, it, can I make something. one last comment before sure, I go? Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Though I was going to say, it is a long way from being in the center of one of the largest corporate scandals in American history to be playing Santa Claus at Christmas, which I saw on your Facebook page. It is a long ride between one to the other. And I'll tell you what, I am proud that you made it out the other end, and I'm proud to know you. And well, I am. You. I truly thank am. You. All right. I have two things. One's a little anecdote, I guess you'd call it, and then I have a joke. I actually put humor into my speeches, believe it or not. But first off, a little anecdote. There was this wise old man, and he was talking to this little boy. And he said, inside of me, there's two wolves. One of the wolves is mean, nasty. He lies. He cheats. He steals. The other wolf is honest, truthful, does everything right. And these two wolves inside of me are fighting all the time. The little boy thought for a minute, and he says, which wolf eventually wins? And the old man said, the one that you feed. Mm. All right, this little old lady, uh, almost in her 90s, her husband dies. They're very wealthy, and she wants to settle up the estate, and she never really liked attorneys, so she didn't want to hire an attorney to do it. She got to the point, though, where she had three questions. She needed an attorney. So she goes into this attorney's office. She asked her three questions. Um, He answers them. She's happy, and she says, how much do I owe you? And he said, well, that'll, that'll be $100. And she said, well, that's very reasonable. She reaches into her purse, and she pulls out a $100 bill and gives it to him and leaves. When she leaves, he notices that it's a new, brand-new, crisp $100 bill. And when he looked at it closely, he saw that it was two $100 bills. So now he's faced with an ethical dilemma. Mm. Should he tell his partner? <laughs> I love that so much. Well, thank y'all very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Guys, as I always end every podcast, get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out and sell insurance. Do it the right way. Make good decisions. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your family. Be honest with the people that you work with every day. And and go home at night and put your head on the pillow and sleep well knowing that good or bad, as bad as this shit gets sometimes, and my God, does it get bad sometimes, if you will do the right thing every time, every day, you will be rewarded by that at some point. And uh, go out there today and make money for your family. Go write good business for the agencies that you represent, and go write good business for the companies that you represent. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much. We love you, too. Guys, you are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we'll be back real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com. 
or email me at iprotectins at gmail.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to bradleyflowersinsurance.com or email him at bradley at sarahlandinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being with you again real soon on the next episode of the Insurance Guys. Take care.